Psalm 112. Please hear the word of the Lord. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice, for the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away. The desire of the wicked will perish. And from the New Testament, I'm going to read from the epistle of Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Verse 17 of the same chapter. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. God's word, would you please pray with me? Lord, in your mercy, you have not been silent. You have spoken. Heal us, I pray, of any foolishness in us that would be tempted to disregard your word and to trust anything that is below it and beneath it. Help us even now to cast ourselves upon it. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in a couple weeks into a series on what the Bible has to say about wealth and possessions. If you've been following at all with us, you know that the Bible has a lot to say. Over 2,300 references to wealth and possessions in the scriptures. More than 15% of what Jesus taught, he taught on wealth and possessions. More than he taught on hell and heaven combined and a lot of other topics. And we're realizing, I hope we're realizing, that this is a real critical issue for us as we live in this world to sort out. And one of the first places we began is to remind ourselves through scripture after scripture that God owns everything. He made this world, he made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the seas and everything in it. By virtue of the fact that he made them and he created them, he owns absolutely everything. And it's important that we change the record in our hearts and minds that play so often, well, this is mine and this is mine and this is mine, to realize, no, we are stewards, that God has given us his things to enjoy and to look after. But in the end of the day, we own nothing and God owns everything. 
Secondly, I wanted us to think last week about some of the general um, ways that we come to possess some of God's stuff. If God owns everything in the world, how do we get some of it? And we looked at last week how there's illegitimate means that we can get stuff. And God allows those to take place, but we can steal. That's not God's ordained way that we get wealth and possessions, but that's how some people get them. And so there's illegitimate ways in through which we get some of God's stuff. But there are also legitimate ways, and we talked about working. We talked about receiving gifts. We talked about being generous, how when we're generous, God pours back into our hearts and lives. And we talked about asking, simply asking our Father for the things that we need, much like a family exists and children ask of their parents things. This week, I want to zero in on a particular text. It's the one that Pastor Barry just read. This text summarizes a great deal of what the Bible has to say about wealth and possessions. And it does so by addressing two categories of people. Those who want to get rich and those who are rich. Almost everybody in the world fits into either of those categories. It doesn't matter if you're 6 years old, if you're 16 years old, or if you're 60 years old. We are either in the category, generally, of wanting to get rich or already being rich. And so Paul is going to expose some of the dangers of either of those postures but also some of the benefits. And so it's what I say, sort of a summary teaching of the, what the Bible has to say about these things. As I've been wrestling through these things this week, and actually over the last number of weeks, I'm just reading scripture after scripture about money and possessions. It occurred to me how easy it is to let biblical truth just go in one ear and out the other. We become so used to a particular way of thinking or so used to a particular way of living because that's our habit and that's the habit of everybody around us that it's very easy to become a hearer of the word and not a doer of the word. And I was just wrestling this through in my mind. It happened to be a rainy day and I was just thinking about rain as it fell on a roof and I thought, you know, rain can fall on a tin roof. And it makes a a great deal of noise if it's big raindrops and you can hear it. But almost all of that rain runs off the tin roof, goes into a gutter, goes out into the drainage system, and eventually makes its way to a lake or the ocean. And then I thought of another kind of roof, a a roof that would be a mossy roof or a, a grassy roof. And you can find them like we have at Coombs out here. And as the rain falls on that roof, it doesn't really make a sound, but it's absorbed by the grasses and by the mosses, and very little actually runs off into the gutter system and out into the lakes or to the oceans. And I just quietly said to myself, Father, I want to be a mossy roof when it comes to hearing what you have to say to me about wealth and possessions. I want to change and I want to be shaped by your word, and I hope that's the desire of all of us as we come to these sorts of things. As Paul comes to this particular text, he's been dealing with, he starts by dealing with false teachers. And we're sort of turning uh, off of false teacher avenue onto contentment way. And the false teachers were kind of saying that you can use godliness to get material gain. And I don't have a time at all to talk about that. We see that all through the history of the world, how godliness can be a front for earning money. And Paul says, no, no, godliness is a means of gain. But not material gain, but a spiritual gain. And that's where he picks up some of the things that he's going to say. So why do we, if we have food and clothing, and Paul is going to say this, if we have food and clothing, which is a word for covering, so I would add in there a covering over our head. If we have food and clothing, we should have enough. Why then do we strive and sacrifice so much 
to accumulate material wealth and possessions. If ultimately it's useless and of a disadvantage compared to the spiritual gain that comes from pursuing godliness. And I thought of this. If God owns everything in the world, and he does, and if I am a child of God, and I am, then why should I worry about my food or my clothing or a roof over my head? I think the vast majority of children, at least in North America, and I would say around the world, certainly at their younger ages, they don't lose sleep over whether they're going to have a roof over their head or whether there's going to be food in the fridge or whether they're going to have something to wear. They just have learned that their mothers and their fathers provide those things for them. They don't lose a wink of sleep over it. They might think, well, I wish I had this jacket as opposed to that jacket. But they really don't lose sleep over wondering what they're going to wear, what they're going to eat the next day, or if they're going to have a roof over their head. They just assume that's going to be there. And I thought to myself, why doesn't that transfer into adulthood? Why doesn't that same kind of trust that we have in our natural mom and dad not transfer into our trust into our spiritual father? Particularly when he is way more wealthy and way more perfect and way more knowledgeable of my needs than my earthly parents ever would be. And so Paul is going to unpack some of these things. And there's two sections in particular that I want us to focus on. Pastor Barry read them. The first section is to what we might call the Christian poor. And the second section is to the Christian rich. Or we might say the first section is to those who wish they had more money, they desire to get rich. And the second section is addressed to those who are rich. As I was thinking this through, though, this week, I thought to myself, well, what is rich? What is the definition of rich? Off the top of my head, I realize it's really difficult to nail down a definition of rich. If you were to pick any 10 people at random off the street in Oceanside today and ask them whether or not they'd like to be rich, chances are 10 of them will say yes. But if you ask those same 10 people what they mean by rich, you are likely to get 10 very different answers. You see, the word wealthy is very much like the word happy. It means something different to everyone. So you think about the definition of rich. Is it personal? Is it comparative? Is it wise, really, to say, well, what it really means to be wealthy is entirely up to you? You see, it's, it's such a relative word. Do we determine riches by income or by assets? Or both? Is wealth determined by the personal freedoms that I am given because I have a certain amount of wealth? Does rich mean the same thing on Vancouver Island as it does in Vancouver or Toronto or Ottawa? Does rich mean the same thing in Canada as it does in China or Ethiopia or Saudi Arabia where you can go to vending machines and get gold bars? Do the scriptures give us any insight into what it means to be rich. And I thought, and I, I know this is maybe not popular, but I thought, I, I think the scripture does maybe give us at least a general starting place. And I think you could make a case from scripture that anybody who has more than their daily basic needs is rich. If you have more than one set of clothes, if you have more than your daily need of food, and if you have more than a shelter over your head, you are rich. What are we taught to pray? Give us this month 
our monthly requirement of food? No, give us this day our daily bread. We'll read this proverb another time in, later on in the message, but Edgar writes this. He says to the Lord, give me neither poverty nor riches. In other words, he says, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Jesus, in another place, said, isn't life worth more than food and the body more than clothing? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? And Paul will say, if we have food and clothing, with these we should be content. And I think, well, what about spiritual wealth? What about spiritual wealth or spiritual poverty? Can you be spiritually rich and yet materially poor? Can you be materially rich and spiritually impoverished? So we need to understand what Paul is talking about when he says he's speaking to those who want to get rich and those who already are rich. Where do you fit in that category? So the first section is verses 6 to 10. And there Paul gives biblical wisdom to those who want to get rich. doesn't matter how old you are. If you want to get rich, if you would like a better bike, or you would like a bigger car, or if you would like another house, or if you would like a longer boat, if you want to get rich, then Paul has some advice to you. And the contentment that Paul is talking about here when he says we should learn contentment is not a contentment in self-sufficiency. It's a contentment in Christ's sufficiency. It's a contentment that trusts in our Heavenly Father to give us what we need, not for me to provide for my needs, so therefore I'm content. And we ought to note, too, that Paul is not saying that we should be content with being destitute. In other words, I don't think the Bible or God says we should be content if we don't have food or clothing or a roof over our head. But he's saying if you have food and clothing, covering, you should be content with that. And so what Paul is going to do as he talks to those who want to get rich, he's going to compare two attitudes, two ways of life. He's going to say, you ought to choose contentment, not covetousness. And so he says, consider choosing contentment. As I look at it, contentment is not defined by one's possessions. It's defined by do you actually trust God to know what your needs are and to be able to provide them? Are you able to trust God if you have a little or if you have a lot? That, I think, is what the Bible gets at when it comes to contentment. And Paul frames it fascinating in a fascinating way. He says, he says now, as we talk about contentment and covetousness, he says, let me frame it this way. And it's a truth that we will fight with until our last breath. He says, remember, remember in your desire to get rich that you came into this world with nothing and you will go out of this world with nothing. He says, let that reality frame your covetousness. You came in empty-handed and you will leave empty-handed. It's a truth that we find in Job when Job um, heard of the loss of everything he owned, family and material possessions. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's a man who was content. Or we read in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 15. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again. 
naked as he came, and shall take nothing from his toil that he may carry away from his hand. This is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so will he go. So what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Why work so hard if when you die, you don't take anything with you? In regard to our earthly possessions, our entry and our exit are identical. One individual who I was reading said, possessions are only the traveling luggage of time. They are not the stuff of eternity. It's such a helpful thing to work that one through. So it makes sense that we travel light, that we don't store up and accumulate treasures here on earth, which will only slow us down in our pursuit of righteousness of heavenly things. There was a time when we used to travel. There was a time when we used to go to airports. And sometimes, I remember in those days, you'd go to the airport and you'd see people with, with luggage like falling over, carts and everything. And they're lining up at the ticket agent and they have to check all their bags in and then they get at the carousel at their destination and they've got this lineup of bags. Or there's Kathy and I who have learned to travel in the last number of years with simply a backpack on our back. It is so much more freeing to travel with a backpack than it is with 29 suitcases. And so it's the same in our spiritual life. Are we bogged down as we are transversing as pilgrims this earth with wealth and possessions? Or are we traveling light? This is how Paul frames the discussion with those who want to get rich. He says, simply think about it. Just think about it. Just frame your desire to get rich with the reality that you were born with nothing and you will take nothing with you. So what's our attitude? Well, Paul says there, he says, if you have food and clothing and covering, you should be content. Luxuries are not essential to contentment. Daily necessities are. Some of you may be familiar with the words I already read from Proverbs where um, the Egger says there, and probably after watching Solomon lose his way, two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. That's a fascinating prayer. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. And this is why he says it. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. Just the bare necessities. <laughs> Think of the jungle book. Just the bare necessities. But that's what Paul says. If you have the bare necessities, food, clothing, and covering, you shall be content. Jesus said as much. He says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, whether you eat or what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? For the Gentiles seek after these things. By Gentiles, he means those who don't have a relationship with God. They all pursue these sorts of things. He says, your father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all of these things will be added to you. Jesus, in another place, said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will put on it. For life is more than food. And the body is more than clothing. So Paul and Jesus and other places in the Bible says, listen, don't worry about these things. Your father knows that you need them. He will provide them. 
And so as Paul is talking to those who want to get rich, he says he's not defining for them the maximum worldly good that a believer is allowed to have. What he is rather outlining is the minimum in which we could find contentment. And so Paul, in another place, says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I've learned that in whatever situation I am, to be content. Wow, I have learned. So it doesn't come naturally. I have learned that in whatever situation I find myself, I will be content. I know what it means to be brought low, and I know what it means to abound. In any and every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger of abundance and need. And then Hebrews says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have, for he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So Paul first puts before the, those who desire to rich this attitude or this admonition or this call, be content. Learn contentment. Because then he says, okay, this is the opposite. If you don't learn to be content and your desire to become rich begins to overtake you, there are horrors associated with it and somebody's going to get hurt. As he talks this way, it sort of wraps up our understanding that money is temporal. That no matter how much you might desire it, the reality is it's temporal. The Bible says one can see that wise men die. Foolish and stupid men all pass away. Then they leave their wealth to others. So be not afraid when a man becomes rich or when his glory increases. In other words, don't covet somebody who has a lot of stuff. Because when they die, they're not going to take anything with them. Don't kid yourself and don't let them trick you into thinking that they've got it better in the next life. And money is dangerous. The writer of Proverbs says, The trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick riches will fall into trouble. And Jesus said, Take care. Be on your guard against all forms of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Paul gives two warnings to one whose heart is beginning to fill with covetousness. The first warning that he gives is to the Christian poor or those who want to get rich. He says, people who want to get rich who set that as their goal in life, open themselves up to a world of danger. I suspect the desire to get rich is a universal temptation. I suspect that the desire to look at what other people have is a temptation that almost every human being will experience at one time or another. It's one of the Ten Commandments, after all. And I think what Paul is getting at here is, listen, if you set it in your heart that your primary goal in life is to become rich, then watch out. And there's any number of reasons why the desire to get rich is a dangerous desire. How do you desire, the, how do you find a balance between desiring wealth and possessions and desiring God? Jesus has already told us you can't have both. You can't serve God and you can't serve money at the same time. How is a desire to get rich in this world conflicted with the desire to get rich in the world to come. We've already talked about the connection between spiritual realities and worldly possessions. Is it possible that the desire to get rich shapes one's path 
Why does Paul warn against it? Why, do we, why should we be careful of, of those who say, Freedom 40, that I'm going to give my life to the first 40 years of my working career so that I can be free to live how I want after I'm 40? Is it wise to say I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 30? Paul is saying that's a very dangerous plan to make. And this is why. He says those who desire to get rich, those who want more, those who want bigger, those who, who want to accumulate, he says they fall into a temptation and a trap. What's the temptation? What is the temptation to get rich or the desire to get rich if it's so strong in your life? What kind of temptations might they be? Well, the temptations to be dishonest. Temptations to steal. Temptations to cut corners. Temptations to look the other way. Temptations not to declare all your income on your tax return. It's strange that we are taught to pray, lead me not in temptation. And yet in our pursuit of riches, we open ourselves up to temptation. And he says, a trap. Well, what's the trap? Well, the trap is the snare of the devil. The trap is the lies that the devil speaks into our heart that money will make you happy. That it's the deceitful mistruths that the devil speaks into our hearts and lives that if you just have more, you will be happier. That if you just have more, more people will like you. If you just have more, you will be the popular person around. And then we know, we've seen that, he gives you that, and bam, he takes it all away from you. You're lured into a decision that can be held over you because you've done something illegal and then somebody has a hold on you. Snare is I've never got enough. What is enough? When I have $1,000 in my bank account? $10,000? $100,000? A million? When is it enough? He says, secondly, they fall into many foolish and harmful desires. I've lived long enough to see these things worked out. Foolish desires, I think, means pursuits that can't rationally be explained. You try and talk to somebody, and, and they're not rational about it. And I've seen this. They are so intent on getting rich that they're ignorant of the cost to their family. They're so intent on getting rich that they're ignorant to the cost to their faith. They start working more Sundays. They start working longer hours. They're so intent on getting rich that they forget the cost to their conscience and the corners that they have to cut to get there. They're moral lapses that come. Foolish desires, harmful desires. I'm aware of the harmful desires that can come. And I've seen these the harmful pursuits that come as you pursue money. You sacrifice praying. You sacrifice reading your Bible. You sacrifice meeting with the people of God. They can harm you physically. I've seen people that they've worked so hard and so long that they look 10 years older. They're physically beat up. They've lost sleep. They've grueling travel schedules. They've got poor eating habits. And physically they're deteriorating, but they won't give up their pursuit to get rich. Or mentally. They've accumulated all this stuff and they're worried about somebody who's going to steal it or somebody who's going to take it away. Or they're worried about just how do I maintain 300 employees or how do I maintain this business? And their desire to get rich has plunged them into foolish and harmful desires. And then he says, and wrong desire can plunge them into ruin and destruction. Ruin. I, I think that Paul is just saying that you can, you can have a pursuit of rich and you can go to bed rich and you can wake up poor. We've seen this in the history of the world. Some people who have lost fortunes overnight. And they have been ruined 
temporally. And I think when he says destruction, I think he's maybe leaning towards eternal destruction. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? So it's a significant warning that Paul gives to those who want to get rich. He says, be very careful that you're not consumed with a desire to get rich. The second warning he gives to those who want to get rich is to the poor. And it's stated in these terms, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's fascinating. It's helpful that Paul doesn't say money itself is evil. Money is not evil in and of itself. It's neutral. It's amoral. And he doesn't say money, the love of money is the root of all evil. There's, there's no preposition or there's no definite article there. It's the love of money is a root of evil. There's lots of other roots of evil, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And we know that the love of money isn't the root of all evil, but there is a certain amount of evil that flows that is attached to that peculiar passion which is the love of money. We've got black bamboo. Somebody told us that black bamboo will never spread. They lied. Black bamboo spreads. And I was digging up a wall the, the other day. I'm putting a wall in our house and I dug down and I found this root and all of a sudden I, I just left it. I didn't think nothing of it. About four days later I came back and there must have been eight or nine shoots coming out of this root. And I dug it up, and it was about a quarter-inch round black bamboo shoot that was shooting about eight inches under the ground, and had gone out about 12 feet, and it must have had a half a dozen shoots coming up of it. One root, but all these shoots. It's the same with the love of money. The love of money is a long root, but it poses up or it exposes itself in so many different evil desires. He says there, of all the evil that is associated with the love of money, he points out two. And listen to this, loved ones. He says, the first one is, the love of money lures people off the right track, and they wander from the faith. Accidentally, purposefully, by deception. It's just another way of reminding us, you can't love God and love money. If you love God, your love of money will wane. If you love money, your love of God will wane. Paul is saying, and I've seen it, and some of you have seen it, that those who love money begin to drift away from a relationship with God and the people of God. This is why the Bible has so much to say about wealth and possessions. And secondly, he says, those who love money have pierced themselves with many griefs. If you live long enough, you will see the griefs that have come into the homes of those who have loved money. Broken marriages, cold relationships with their children, loss of friendships, significant physical stress, an inability to enjoy the things that they've accumulated. The love of money is addictive. Ecclesiastes puts it this way, the one who loves money is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This, too, is futile. I've mentioned a number of times an article that I read years ago which has made an impression on me. When too much isn't enough. When you love money, too much will never be enough. And when you love money and too much isn't enough, you will experience various griefs and pains in your life. You go through the Bible. We don't have time this morning. You can look them up. Achan, Delilah, 
Gehazi, Ananias and Sapphira, Jews at Judas, all of us in our heart have a warning or an enticement to covetousness. And so to the Christian poor, we'll get through this, but to the Christian poor, to those who desire to get rich, what does Paul say? Choose contentment over covetousness. Work that through, loved ones. Choose contentment over covetousness. And then he has a whole bunch of wisdom for those who are already rich. And those are found in verses 17 to 19, just three short verses of his admonition to those who are already rich. And you know that he's getting at something, and you have to have blinders to miss this emphasis because of the many emphasis to riches in this few sentences. He uses the adjective for rich in verse 17. He uses the noun for riches and wealth in verse 17. He uses the adverb richly in verse 17. He uses the verb to be rich in verse 18. One of the things that I so love about the Bible, and Paul gets it here, I can't find anywhere in the Bible where all Christians are commanded to give up their possessions and wealth and embrace asceticism. Paul certainly doesn't here. There's no sense at all that Paul is saying to the rich, you need to divest yourself of all your wealth because that's not pleasing to God. Nor is Paul anywhere implying that it's a sin to be rich. No, because Paul understands what we've shown, that it's God who makes rich. And that God chooses in his sovereignty to make some rich and to make some poor. But Paul will also warn that there are also dangers that come with being rich. And also things that the rich ought to do. He said, first, if you are rich to the rich, which most of us are to the rich, Understand the dangers that are associated with being rich. Two of them, and we can get through them easy. Pride. Pride. It's so ugly, and it's so deceptive, and it sneaks in. But pride comes to the rich when they begin talking to themselves or thinking to themselves, well, I've earned this. I've worked hard. It's because of my education. It's because of my hard work. It's because I haven't, I haven't had anybody help me along. I've worked for all of this. I've made wise decisions. And they look at other people and they say, well, you too could be rich if you would do this. And if you would be that. And if you wouldn't waste your money. And if you wouldn't spend it this way, you too could be rich. But look at me. I've made all of these wise decisions. I am so smart. That's why I'm rich. And in fact, it's one of the most ugly kind of prides in humankind. It's a vanity. It's a self-importance. It's a contempt for others. It's a boasting. It's a judgment on other people. And it's very easy for the rich to look down on the poor. And we've been saying this, loved ones, that, that God owns everything. And we have greater responsibility as the rich because of what God has given us to steward. And we need to be guarded, or we need to guard against such pride. The other is false security. And you've probably seen this. And, you know, we maybe have thought this ourselves. And it's placing your trust in those riches. How do you think about your wealth? How do you think about your bank accounts? How do you think about your investments? How do you think about your homes and those kinds of things? Do you perceive any need of God in your life to provide for you? Or have you said to God, you know, God, I'm, I'm one of the guys who have done okay. You don't, you don't really need to help me because I've taken care of everything, thank you. 
I know I say that kind of sarcastically, but that's sometimes how we think. We begin to put our confidence and our trust in what we've accumulated. Paul says, listen, you can put all that, or the Bible says, you can put all that stuff and all these investments and a thief can come in and overnight and take it. The stock market can turn overnight and you can go from a millionaire to a nothing heir in a matter of seconds. Your business can burn down and your insurance won't cover it. There's just, your health can go. There's just a numerous amount of things that can happen. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it's gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle towards heaven. You just think you've made it. And then you want more. Or you just think you've made it and a new edition of the car comes out. You just think you've made it and somebody builds a bigger house beside you. Paul says, be very careful in putting your security and your trust in these things. One more Proverbs. There's more, but he says, whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Jeremiah says, let us not be wise, or let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The dangers that the rich face are pride and false security. What are the opportunities, though, that Paul says are for the rich? And this is beautiful. He, he doesn't condemn people for being rich. He just says, listen, these are unique dangers that you're going to face. And he says, by the way, there are some awesome things that you can do that other people can't do. And he says, first of all, you have an opportunity to add one kind of wealth to another kind of wealth. He says, command those who are rich to be rich. Command those who are rich in this present world to be rich in good deeds. In other words, use your wealth. Use your excess. Use your surplus not to build your pride and to put your trust in, but to do good things and to look for people who have needs and to provide for those needs. It's a helpful insight, something that I never thought of, but I was reading of this a couple weeks ago. If you are among the rich, Paul is saying, don't be among the idle rich. I think the idle rich are typified as those described in the parable of the rich fool who wanted to build a bigger barn and wanted to put more of his stuff in there and wanted to sit back and have a wonderful life and eat, drink, and be merry for many years to come. That's the idle rich. He says, look, I've laid up ample goods for many years to come. Relax, drink, and be merry. What Paul is saying here, no, is abundance should not lead to laziness and self-focus. Rather, he says, it opens up massive doors of opportunity to do good deeds. And to the rich, he has four things. He says to you, do good be rich in good deeds, be generous. Why is it that we can be generous? Because we realize God has been generous with us. The only reason I have lots of stuff is because God has determined that I should have lots of stuff. And that if God has been generous to me, why can't I be generous with others? And he says, and be willing to share and help others. In other words, to those of us who are rich, look for ways, open your eyes, to alleviate want around you, to promote good around you. After all, has not God been generous to us? And not only has he been generous to us um, materially, but has he not been generous to us spiritually? 
Think about how God has lavished, lavished his grace and his mercy upon you through Christ Jesus. Think about how you have received the eternal benefits of everlasting life because of God's graciousness to you through Christ. And then he gives opportunity to the rich. He says the rich are told not to stash away their stuff, not to lay up treasure for themselves, but to lay up treasure for themselves in heaven. He says, thus you're supposed to do good and be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for yourselves is a good foundation for the future. Which is more valuable? Think this through, loved ones. Which is more valuable? To be rich in this present age, which is so short and so temporal, or to be rich in the age to come. To accumulate a lot of money and possessions here, or to take hold of that which is truly life. See, Paul uses that phrase here. And to the rich, I know it's open to everybody, but to the rich in particular, he says that if, if, you're, if you're this kind of person, if you begin to do good and are generous and help those in needs, he says to you uh, that, that, that you will take hold of that which is truly life. I don't know, have you th- I, I've been thinking about this. Sometimes we think that true life is the ease and the comfort and the freedoms to enjoy our material possessions. Paul says, no, no, no. True life, true life is experienced when you give that stuff away, when you're generous, because that demonstrates that you have true life in you. Remember Zacchaeus. Remember what John the Baptist said. That there is a different view on our possessions when we are taken over by the Spirit of God. To experience that which is truly life is to experience eternal life. Life to come in the new world. When we are generous with our riches, when we do these things, we get a taste of what life to come will be like. Put another way, do you want to know what life will be like in the new heaven and the new earth? Do good. Be generous. Share with those who have need and you will experience what is truly life. Father, I thank you for a bit of time together today to reflect on this summary that Paul gives. Father, I pray that amongst us there are certainly those who have been wrestling with the desire to get rich. And some of us maybe have been grasped by a love of money. Oh, Father, may we be like a mossy roof and those truths settle into our hearts and we take those warnings seriously. And rather than pursuing riches and wanting to get rich, we will learn contentment. And Father, for those of us who are rich, may we also take seriously the dangers that come with wealth spiritual dangers that are associated with that material wealth that you have given us. And may we choose to fight those by being generous and doing good and in so doing take hold of that which is really life. Oh, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.